We are in um, Matthew chapter 17 tonight for our Bible study. We're going to look at something very critical, very um, applicable to the season that we're in right now, and I know that the Lord has a word for us in it. And so if I could ask you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 17. Let me read the text to you. I'm going to read from verse 1 through 21, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the message. Um, It says here, it says that after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and he brought them up into a high mountain apart. So if you were with us in our study last week, Jesus had separated the apostles for a time of retreat in the northern region of Caesarea Philippi. They are still in that region, and they've spent six days in that region, and now Jesus wants to go for a hike. He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and they go up into an exceeding high mountain by themselves. And it says that once they arrived there, verse 2, it says that he was transfigured, that means changed in form, before them in their sight, and his face did shine as the sun, and his clothing, his raiment, was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will, let us make here three tabernacles or three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The cloud that so often in the Bible represents the presence of God Almighty, the cloud that filled the temple in times of old. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man except for Jesus only. So the vision, the experience comes to an end. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. John, who is written in another place, that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, And saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, he's a lunatic. I think many of us parents can relate to that at some time or another, but this was a much more severe instance for certain. And sore vexed, for oft times he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for truly I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And so, Father, as we read your word, we ask now, Lord, that you would cause the authority of its message and the reason for its placement here to reach our hearts and our lives tonight. You said that your word is living and powerful, and so we ask, Lord, that you would make it live in us even now. We pray, Father, that you would remove every distraction, that you would bind every spirit that would distract us or pull us away from hearing what you want to say tonight, and that you would give us a perfect clarity, Lord, as we attend to you. So please hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the prophet Daniel in the days of his prophecy, had a vision concerning the kingdoms of the world that would come and go. He was given a vision of a small stone that would come and 
hit the foot that was of ten toes, the last kingdom of the world, and that that small stone would not only crush all of the nations that were before it, but that that stone would grow into a huge mountain that would fill the entire earth. And that stone that Daniel saw in that vision was none other than Jesus himself, who would come seemingly as something small, something that could turn into almost nothing, But it wouldn't be nothing. It would turn into a mountain that would end up filling the entirety of the earth. Jesus is the stone. Now, Matthew's gospel really is the high-speed footage played in slow motion of the splash that that stone made when it came into the world. Because the theme of Matthew, or if we could say the melody of Matthew, it really is the heralding forth of this kingdom. It's Jesus seemingly small, seemingly insignificant, just a babe in an impoverished family born in an insignificant town. But the kingdom that he would usher in would be a kingdom that would be everlasting and that will one day fill the entirety of the earth. And Matthew is describing for us systematically the way in which that kingdom set down its roots and began to grow upward. That's the melody. Now, the harmony of Matthew's message really also gives to us the calling of kingdom citizens. And so you can't have a kingdom without people that you're ruling and reigning over or ruling and reigning with. And so at the same time Jesus is bringing in the kingdom, he is also calling those whom he will bring out of the world and into his fold, into his kingdom. And so amid the revelation of the kingdom, there is also the raising up of the citizens. And just like the kingdom is growing from seemingly nothing, that is also the way the citizens grow. We are born again, and Peter calls us newborn babes, those whom Jesus calls. And we really start as nothing. We're infants and babes, but yet it tells us that he is making us into a kingdom of priests and kings. So he's doing something in us. He's developing us. He's bringing us to a place of maturity. Now, the process of going from infants and babes to priests and kings is not automatic. It's not something where he just flips a light switch and then all of a sudden one day we're nothing and then the next day we're ruling and reigning. No, there's a process. There's a development. There's a discipleship. There's something that happens where we learn of him And in the process of learning him, we grow into the role that he is forming and fitting us for. And it's a process. It's involved. Now, anyone who comes to a place of authority, and that is what a priest or a king is in kingdom context, knows that there's a process and that there's a high price to pay. Nobody comes into the place of being a king or a priest without learning the lessons and going through the process. Ask Tom Brady, the king of quarterbacks, if it was automatic, if one day he just woke up and he just knew how to run the greatest offense that ever was in football history. Now, I'm not a Tom Brady fan or New England, but we all understand that there was a lot of work, a lot of dedication. There was a lot of sacrifice. There was a lot of development that went into making him what he would one day become. And in any developmental process, there is a cycle. First, we set a goal, or we are given a vision, something that we would like to attain to, or a level that we would like to reach. And then there's a process of working towards that measure or that goal. And then when we reach it, we repeat and we set a new goal a little bit higher, or maybe a little bit further, or a little bit deeper towards where it is that we're desiring to get to. So there's a goal, there's growth, there's graduation, and then there's a new goal. Now, as it concerns Jesus and his call upon our lives, it began with him just calling us and saying, follow me. And as we follow him, he begins this process in our lives of growing us and developing us into what we will one day be, and it doesn't stop until he's finished, until he brings forth the finished product. Now, in a kingdom as vast as Christ's kingdom, the one that will fill the whole earth, and really it fills all of Infinity. It's not even an earthly thing. It's beyond earth. But in a kingdom this vast, 
the development is also vast. And so Jesus is growing us. He's growing us as citizens. And so what he does is he gives us a vision of where he's taking us, or he shows us in the word what it is that he's making. And then he works a process inside of us as we go to that place. And then when we reach it, he brings us on further and he takes us to the next step. And so there's a vision, a process, an achievement, and then there's a new vision. In sports, we call this progressive overload, meaning that we're always trying to lift a little heavier or do more reps or more sets than we did last time until we slowly progress towards our goals and we keep going. In the spirit, it's somewhat different. In the spirit, it feels like we get fixed and then we're flipped and then we're fixed again, repaired, and then we're fastened in a new place and then we're flipped again. And it's just this process of Jesus bringing us forward and developing his spirit within us. And it doesn't stop. It didn't stop even for the disciples. Because just before Jesus went to the cross, when he was eating his last meal with them, even then, it's John chapter 16, verse 12, he told them that he still had many things that he wanted to say to them, but that they could not bear them now. It was, there was more, but even after Jesus would die and rise, he still had more for them. And so this development keeps going. Now, why do I say all of that by way of introduction? Because back in our last study in chapter 16, in verse 21, Jesus raised the bar. He set really a new standard or a new goal, or he gave them a new vision. He began talking about the cross. It says in Matthew 16, 21, that from that time, Jesus began to show unto them how he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised again the third day. And that's why Peter said, no, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus called him Satan. But then Jesus said this. He said, if any man wants to follow me, then let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For he that seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels, he'll find it and he will keep it. That was brand new to the disciples. So far, it's been nothing but excitement, healings, miracles, adventures, tiring, but nevertheless exciting, and Jesus has been right there providing all the way. But now they come to a place where Jesus begins to talk about self-sacrifice, self-denial, even to the point of death, and following him with perfect trust, even in places, two places, and in ways that we don't understand. And this is brand new to them. It's a new kind of a level. Now, Jesus is saying to them, essentially, it's time to grow who's still with me. And Jesus is committed to bringing them, as he is with us, to see the enormity of what this life that we've been called into is. To be a Christian or a Christ follower is not to be a part of a subculture or to be a part of a spiritual social club in some ways. No, it's a tree, a seed that becomes a tree that fills the entire earth. It is, as Moses said, our God is a consuming fire. It starts very small. But the development, the realization, the growth is eternal. It keeps going. It keeps going. Now, there's a sad reality in all this. And that is that the largest room in the kingdom of heaven is the nursery. Because there are many people that Jesus calls, and they're saved, but they don't really want to grow. They kind of want to stay in that place the Bible calls infancy or childlikeness. And they don't really want to go forward. They don't want to move on. And Jesus, because of the way he is, he doesn't force anyone to grow or to move on. He waits for us to be willing. And so I want to show you tonight in this passage one of the ways that Jesus moves us forward. And so in the passage that we read, there's five components or five kind of successive stages that happen in this process as Jesus moves them forward. And here they are. They are, first of all, retreat then revelation, then realization, then reality, and then responsibility. And so if you notice right at the beginning there in verse 1, it says the words, it just says, after six days. And I want you to notice that. Because 
what it tells us is that this revelation that they're about to receive came after an extended period of rest. They had already come to Caesarea Philippi on retreat, and now they've been there, we know, for at least six days when Jesus calls these three and they go even further apart by themselves. And so they've been in isolation, at least somewhat amongst themselves, for a period of time now. And I find that just significant in that we find ourselves even right now in a period of forced isolation, as it were. And rather than seeing it as an obstacle, it may be an opportunity because God may be priming us for something that he wants to do, a deeper work in our personal and individual lives. And so they are refreshed, they're recharged, they're refueled, and they're being prepared for what Jesus wants to do in their life next. It's an interesting thing, but over, I would say, the past five years, and and it may be longer, but just as far as I've recognized it, I have heard the words anxiety, uh, stress, depression, mental illness, overwhelmedness. I have heard those words more in the past five years than I have in my entire life up to and before that time. Now, with that, we're also hearing all of the solutions that people propose to those problems. We're hearing words like therapy and meditation and eat less carbs and take more vitamin D3 and B12 and get a therapy dog. And, you know, people have all of these solutions to the problem of this anxiety and the stress that everyone seems to be feeling. Sometimes I wonder if the greatest solution might just be take a nap. Back off, slow down, take a break. In the Old Testament, it was actually law that God's people had to take one day in seven when they would do no work. They would do nothing. They would prepare even their food the day before. And on the Sabbath, they would do nothing but shut down and completely rest. Then there were seven times throughout the year where they had to take a week and just feast, rest, celebrate, be with family, and just slow down and shut things down. Now, in the New Testament, we're not under that kind of a law. Jesus has taken the law of commandments that was against us. It says that he nailed it to the tree and he moved it out of the way. We're no longer bound by that. And for that reason, we don't do it. We don't take one in seven. We don't take seven weeks in the year. We barely take two or three weeks in the year. And thus, we're so overcharged with busyness that we become overwhelmed. Now, Jesus said something interesting. Though we're not under the law and we're not required to rest, Jesus said that man was not made for the Sabbath, meaning that God didn't create the Sabbath and say, I need some people to keep this rule. So here's people. No, it says that the Sabbath was made for man. It's actually a gift that God gave to us. It's permission for us to slow down. He even says that I'm going to provide for you supernaturally when you do this because you need it. It's a gift that we have. I know that for me, when I burn the candle on both ends for an extended period of time, the first thing that starts to go in me is my spiritual sensitivity. I lose a sense of a connection with God. I lose a sense of his presence. I stop hungering for his word. When I read his word, it doesn't go in. And I find that my inspiration, my creativity, all of the things that make me who he's called me to be, begin to short circuit and shut down. Spiritual sensitivity oftentimes comes because we're rested, we're refreshed, and we're ready. And I believe that Jesus did this strategically. He's going to drop a revelation on them, but he did it when they were in a season of retreat. Now, I also see in verse 1 something interesting there, and that is that he only took Peter, James, and John with him. Now, I know he didn't love them more, and I know that he wouldn't exclude anyone. He's not a respecter of persons. So why just those three? And really, we don't know. There's many speculations, people say. But I really kind of believe that it was just because they wanted it. He probably would have taken anyone, but when Jesus talked about the cross and denying self and following him fully, he probably read the eyes, the emotions, the intensity of those that were listening to him, and perhaps he saw in them 
that they were willing they would go. So Jesus said, hey, I'm hiking up a mountain. Who wants to go? And maybe it was those three that just said, Jesus, if you're going, we're in. We want to know what's going to happen where you are. That's where we want to be. And so these guys go. Now, it's interesting to me. There's two verses I want to share with you. Psalm 25, verse 14. It says that the secret of the Lord is with those that fear him. And I believe that God is constantly looking over his church for those that genuinely revere him, genuinely fear him, genuinely want to know him, because God wants to reveal himself in greater measure. The other verse I want to share with you is from Isaiah 44. It's actually two verses. It's Isaiah 44, verse 28. And it's concerning a Gentile king named Cyrus. It says that God says of Cyrus, Isaiah 44, 28, that he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundations will be laid. So God found this Gentile king named Cyrus who was willing to do his will. And notice what God says to him in chapter 45, verse 3. He says, I will give to you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. I believe that when a person, when a Christian, sets themselves in a place where they genuinely want to do God's will, Lord, whatever you want with my life, no matter what it costs me, no matter how inconvenient it is, no matter how difficult it is to climb it, Lord, I want to do your will and I'm set to do it. I believe that God says the same thing. I'm going to show you the secrets of dark things. Dark just means hidden, the hidden things. And I'm going to reveal myself to you. So God, in the person of Jesus, takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up into this high mountain, and then he moves to stage two of this, the revelation. It tells us in verse 2 that he was transfigured or changed in appearance before them in such a way that it says that his face shined like the sun in its brightness and his clothing became as white as light. And essentially what happens here is that Jesus is glorified. He's changed into the glorified version that we will see him in when we arrive in glory. It's described in Revelation chapter 1. He's recognizable, but he's completely different. He's flawless. He's endless. He's radiant. He's completely filled with the light, the life, the energy of God and his kingdom. And Peter, James, and John are there to see it, probably blinded by the light that they saw. Now, amazingly, this very thing that we see in Jesus here is part of what awaits us in the kingdom that's coming. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation, but I want you to hear what awaits us one day. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, For we know that when this earthly tent that we live in, the tent speaking of our bodies is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body. We will have a house in heaven, an eternal body, made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies... We groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that close us, but rather we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. And so what awaits us is what they saw in Jesus, a glorified body. Now, I'm looking forward to that day. Our glorified bodies, just like Jesus was then, will have perfect energy. I've had, I've had a few moments in my life where I feel like I've had just about perfect energy. There's a clarity. There's a vision. I just know what to do. And, and I love it. And I recognize it. And I say, yes, I've arrived. And then it leaves. I wake up the next morning, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll try for days to figure out what I did 
in order to get to that place. And no matter what, I'll try to get the right amount of sleep. I'll eat just the right balance. I'll exercise. I'll get everything right, but it's gone. It's like, oh, it was here, and it's gone. Now, if any of you guys know Pastor Bobby perfectly, he doesn't have that problem. He always has perfect energy. It's a gift from God. It's supernatural. I'm telling you, I pray in the same room as the man. And sometimes I'll just watch, and he'll sit there with his hands on his knees, and his lap will just vibrate. It just broods. He's just filled with energy all the time. It's just a spiritual gift. I've I've given up trying to figure it out. But in glory, we will all have that perfect energy all the time. Another thing that we'll have that I'm really looking forward to, is that we'll have perfect purity. Do you notice in the text that it says that Jesus' face shined like the sun and his clothing was white as light? Now, the face always speaks of the identity. It's the real you. It's the expression of what you really are in the unseen places. And when it's white as the sun, it's speaking of the purity or the essence of what's on the inside. The clothing in the Bible always speaks of what's outward. That means what other people see when they look at us, it's what covers what's really on the inside. And what I'm fascinated by here in glory is that there's a perfect harmony and synchronization between what's going on inside the person and what is seen on the outside of the person. Now, there is no one on the face of the planet that has that quality today. It is impossible because we are all defiled by sin on the inside. And thus, if we were to wear on the outside, synchronized with what we are on the inside, it would be disgusting. I've I've often thought this, that if we could read each other's thoughts, like all of a sudden every silent thought could be heard, for 10 seconds the whole world would be dead. Because when we saw what people really thought about us or about things or what was really going on versus what's put forward, (laughs) we would just, we would all kill each other and we would die immediately. But in heaven, in glory, in his kingdom, when things are set right, there's going to be purity. What we are on the inside will be reflected on the outside. The other thing that we'll have in glory in the kingdom that we don't have now is we'll have perfect relationships. Did you notice it says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and it says that they were talking with him? And I just find that amazing. I don't find it really that amazing that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. I find it amazing that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah. That there was just this fellowship. It was almost as though they had come to a perfect place of of not eavesdropping on the conversation that's always happening within the Trinity, but that they were included in the conversation. They were a part of it, and they knew each other. They were so known that even Peter, James, and John, who had never met or seen Elijah and Moses, knew who they were. Because Peter said, let's build three temples, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I'm so looking forward to that day when relationships are so perfect and they're so pure and clean that we are fully known and we have the capacity to fully know. Human beings, we are made to be relational because we're made in the image of God and God is relational. And thus there's a drive in us that we want to connect with other people. We crave connection, but yet we often fear connection because of the vulnerability and the pain it can cause and we rarely find true connection. But when we truly connect, and I believe that God gives us people in our life that we connect with, I believe that we have nearly touched the core of our reason for existence. But on the other side of the coin, when we make ourselves vulnerable and truly uncover for the sake of connection, and we're rejected or insulted for who we really are, I believe there's an undefinable pain that we experience that probably is much like what hell will be like. Because we're made to connect. And one of the greatest glories that awaits us is that we will fully know and we will fully be known and will be accepted and included. I want to read this to you. This is from a pastor who passed away maybe about a year ago. 
And he, he struggled with extreme health issues, but he had a very close walk with the Lord. And in the weeks and months that were leading up to his death, he, he was basically bedridden. And God gave him a vision of what it was going to be like when he was in glory. And I want to read to you uh, w- one of the things that he wrote. It's called Finally Recognized. He says this. He says, I'm still hurting. Some people see me as a pastor. Others talk to me as a neighbor. I appreciate the closeness of my family, the graciousness of my church community, and I'm hurting. Maybe you can relate. Perhaps you are hurting. In fact, more than perhaps, you have been hurt in life. God knows. Yet few others do. No one can fully relate. It it may not even be anyone's fault. At least you don't seek to keep a tab. You just cannot be fully recognized. But you will. In heaven. As the Apostle John said in his letter, you will know as you are known. You'll find your place. Fully recognized. Though it may take some time, maybe it will be for the first time. When Jesus first rose from the grave, few people recognized him. Not immediately. Not at first glance. Mary Magdalene thought him to be a gardener. Peter and John saw him on the shore. They didn't know it was him right away. For Thomas to believe... Jesus invited him to touch his wounds. He traveled 12 miles with two of his disciples. They finally knew it was him once they sat down and broke bread. It took time, but each follower would recognize him. Yet they would see Jesus in ways they hadn't before. He was seen as he truly is, not simply as a carpenter, not a mere rabbi, not even a healer. He was seen as the risen Lord. When we are dancing on streets of gold, I wonder how long it might take to recognize one another. It might take some time. Not because we're hidden or disguised there, but because we are finally seen for who we truly are. All our masks will be withdrawn, our flaws and sins taken away. Maybe only in heaven will we see, without all the junk, no hypocrisy, simply love. And I absolutely love that description. It, it, it brings me to tears every time I read it. To think about the fact that we will fully be known and will fully know, <clears throat> it's not tears, that's just my voice. And <clears throat> I don't have corona, just a dry spot. Listen, I believe that part of the reason why we're unre- we'll, we might be unrecognizable in glory at first is because in heaven we'll be seen in a way that no one has ever seen us before. No one has ever seen the purest form of what we are. Now, On to Peter's reaction. Okay, Peter sees this vision, James and John. They're in this moment, and now they react. Notice what Peter says. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Now, I believe that's one of those biblical understatements. When Peter said, it is good, I think what he meant was, ah, you know, this is incredible. This is what life is all about. He says, this is good. And then he says, Jesus, let's just stay here. Let's build three tents, three booths, tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I want to stay. Now, it's interesting, but what Peter is actually asking for here is he's asking Jesus, can we just wrap up the whole earth plan right now? And it can just be done. It's over. See, he says, let's build three tabernacles. There were seven feasts that were kept by the ancient Israelites. And those seven feasts were all prophetic, speaking of things that would happen in the yet time future. And the Feast of Tabernacles was looking forward to the time when God would tabernacle or dwell amongst his people. It looks forward to the kingdom in its fullness. So what Peter is asking for is he's saying, Lord, let's just end it now. Let's do this right now. This is really, 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 really good. Now, I want to tell you this. This statement by Peter is the very reason why Jesus brought them up on the mountain in the first place. There's probably many reasons, but this is probably the chiefest reason why. Because Jesus wanted Peter to see what he was aiming towards. This is your destiny. This is what I've called you to. This is where you're going, where I'm taking you. And I'm giving you this vision to create an appetite that will inform your purpose. 
Once you see why you're to take up the cross and deny yourself and follow me, then you'll understand when the pain of it comes, why you're enduring that. Habakkuk 2, verse 2, says a profound thing. God speaks to Habakkuk and he says this. He says, write the vision and make it plain or clear upon the tables or on paper that he may run that reads it. In another place, Proverbs 29, verse 18, the wise man says that my people perish because they lack vision. In other words, when we don't have a vision for where we're going or why we're going, then we begin to wander aimlessly and ultimately we quit in our pursuit when things get difficult. And so Jesus is giving his disciples a vision of things that are to come so that they'll always know what they're aiming for before they get there. I think it's significant that it was Peter that was called Satan in the last segment. Because Peter was basically saying, I don't want to cross. I don't want to deny myself. Lord, you're going to be the king and we're going to rule and reign with you. And Jesus said, no, Peter, it's not the crown. It's the cross. And so Peter's the one here that says, Lord, this is good. Let's stay. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't understand this right now. But this is for a time yet future. But this is why you must embrace the cross. Because you're heading here ultimately. Now it's interesting, Peter never said at any other time in Jesus' ministry that it's good for us to be here. He didn't say it when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. I'm sure that was outstanding. But he didn't say, Lord, let's just stay here. Let's keep doing this. This is awesome. He didn't do it when he was walking on the water. Like, wow, Lord, this is great. Let's just keep. He, didn't, he never did it. He only did it here. Because I believe that he realized that this was the purpose. This is what it's all about. I ran into a man this week at uh, the auto parts store. And he was a believer. He goes to another church. And we got talking about live streaming and the, you know, the situation and the churches and the whole thing. And he, he looked at me. He kind of was trying to figure out if I was safe. Am I a real Christian? And once he determined that I was safe enough, he said, you know. He goes, he got this kind of half smile. And he goes, you know. He goes, this was prophesied by a prophet who died a couple of years ago. And he said that this pestilence was coming. And he said that when it's over, we're going to see the biggest move of God that you've ever seen on the face of the planet. There's going to be miracles happening all over the place, healings and divine visitations and just miracles, unbelievable. And I'm just listening to the guy, you know, and I'm taking it and I'm, you know, kind of, I'm thinking my own thoughts and wearing my shrouded response on the outside, you know, the whole thing is he's saying, saying these kind of things. But, but the amazing thing was, as I was kind of thinking about this later on, is that it didn't move me one bit, even if what he said is true. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to see a move of God. I want to see people get saved. I pray for revival in our nation, and I hope he's absolutely right. But you know what moves me almost nothing? It, it really literally moves me nothing, is the idea of seeing miracles. Because I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years now, and I don't need a miracle to prove to me that he's real or that he exists. All a miracle is, is the bending of scientific or natural law. And as soon as a miracle happens, the miracle is over and it's irrelevant. It doesn't even matter anymore. It's nothing. And if miracles happened every day, believe me, you and I would get so used to it that it wouldn't move us anymore either. Miracles aren't where it's at. Glory is where it's at. The kingdom that's coming is where it's at. Being in his presence is where it's at. Sensing him in true worship and in true connection and fellowship with him is where it's at. Fellowship with believers where there's a feeling of family that supersedes even that which you have with normal relations. That's where it's at. It's the glory of God's spirit enveloping everything and making it right. That's what matters. And when you've tasted the perfection of the coming kingdom... It's power, it's presence, it's essence, the deep fullness that he brings, then this appetite ruins you for everything else and it drives you forward. That's why Jesus showed them this vision. It was to inform their purpose for things to come. Why did Paul the apostle, after being stoned to death and left for dead, get up and go back into a city and preach to people that just tried to kill him? Because he had a vision of what was to come. 
Why was Peter, this same Peter, able to sleep like a baby on the night before his pending execution? Because he had a vision for the kingdom. A vision for what's to come will drive us forward and keep us even in the darkest of circumstances and situations. This moment created an appetite for these apostles that they would never be able to get the taste out of their mouth until they experience it again in glory and it moved them forward. Did you know that appetites are one of those things that serve us on earth that we won't have in heaven? In heaven, we're going to be completely satisfied. You can't be hungry and satisfied at the same time. Appetites are something that God uses on earth to serve us, to move us towards his purpose. It happens all the time. It's an appetite that he puts in us for marriage that causes us to become responsible enough to be able to get married. If we didn't have the appetite, we would never grow up. It's the appetite that serves us. There's an appetite in us to be productive and to do things that are productive. And so that appetite to be productive causes us to learn skills and to do things, learn to do things that are useful and to develop as people and to understand our talents because we want to do something. We don't want to waste our life. And, and there's an appetite in us to connect with other people. And so that appetite to connect causes us to learn how to empathize and understand where people are coming from. And it's just an important part. That's why there's all these counterfeit things that ruin the appetite and thus ruin the process. That's why people that have sex with their partner before they get married often don't enjoy their marriage or they have trouble in their marriage because they satisfied the appetite. They didn't do the work. They're not ready for it. That's why people that get addicted to things like video games or gaming, it gives them a false sense that they're accomplishing something because they beat a level or beat a game, but they never actually really accomplished anything, and thus they become lazy, their work ethic dies because they've satisfied the appetite, but they haven't developed on the inside. The same thing with connection. Social media is great, especially right now because it's allowing us to be together. But it has a dark side, and that is that we can get validation or we can get a feeling of connection with another person when really they've just put a like button on a picture that we formulated or a statement that we stole or something that we crafted, but it's not really the true us. But we get the feeling when someone comments or likes what we do that we've connected, but we really haven't. And so there's an emptiness that that relational drive in us is supposed to, to connect, but it doesn't connect. And so appetites serve us, and it's a glory appetite, a, an appetite for the kingdom that's coming that keeps us growing. And without a vision of what awaits us, we will wander aimless and will remain infants in our Christian experience. Now, God responds to Peter. Peter says, let's stay. God says, yo, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Put your eyes, don't try. Yeah, I remember one time I worked with this old Italian man and I was always making suggestions about how we should do things. He was experienced. I was an apprentice, yet I knew, thought I knew everything. And one day he just snapped and he looked at me and he said, hey, he goes, I get a pera from a here up. You get a pera from a here down. Capish? I said, I got it. I get it. <laughs> and I learned to keep my... That's ex exactly what God says to Peter here. He says, look, he gets paid from the neck up. You don't get paid yet. You're nothing. <laughs> You're not even Moses and Elijah yet. You keep your eyes on Jesus and hear what he says. And I love that because if God tells us that we're to do something, then God's going to make us able to do it. He gives us the faculties and the ability to hear Jesus when we're listening. And so he tells them to listen. Now, next, the realization. The vision ends, okay? The sad reality is that they couldn't stay in that place of perfection very long. And they come to a realization that they're not in heaven yet. But the effect of the vision made its mark in Peter and James and John who were there. And this is the amazing thing about when Jesus does something supernatural in us and just reveals something greater than what we knew before is that it is impossible for us to unsee what we have just seen. 
and it is impossible to undo the impact of that experience upon our lives once we've had it. There's a song by an artist named Sarah Grove, and I love the the lyrics. The song is called uh, Painting Pictures of Egypt, and she says this. She says, I'm painting pictures of Egypt. That's the past, where I used to be, but I'm leaving out what it lacked because the future feels so hard and I want to go back. But she says, but the places I have been to cannot hold the things I've learned, and those doors were closed off to me while my back was turned. And that's what happens to these guys. They have just been given something so great that it's impossible for them to return to the same frame of mind or priority of life that they had before they saw it. Those doors are gone forever. The realization they have is that they are a citizen of something bigger than they ever imagined possible. But they also realize another thing. They realize that they were at a severe disadvantage because although they knew of the kingdom and tasted the kingdom, they did not yet possess the powers to come of that kingdom. And thus they realized that they need a greater understanding for their lives moving forward. And that's why as they came down the mountain, they began to engage Jesus in a conversation concerning Elijah and what God is going to do in the times that are yet future. Listen to me. I want you to understand this. You know that you're growing and advancing in the things of God when you have a desire and a need for the word of God and the truth of God to be revealed to you. And I'm going to tell you this now, that if you have no desire to read God's word or no desire to know more of him or to be more equipped by him, then you are in a place right now where you are in desperate need of a fresh vision from Jesus of things that are to come. Any trainer in any situation that trains an athlete that feels like they've hit a wall, they've come to a place where they're not growing, they're not advancing, they're not going to ask them if they're training hard enough, if they're under enough pain, the first question they're going to ask is, how's your nutrition? And Jesus is the same way. If you're not growing, if you're not advancing, if you've lost a sense of purpose in your life, how's your nutrition? Are you seeing that you need the word of God, the truth of God in your life? Well, the realization quickly folds into the reality in verse 14. It says that when they came down, to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. Listen, the reality is that the ministry of Jesus and of Peter, James, and John, and of you and me, if we're still in this world, it's because we're needed in this world. The reality is, is that there's a mission. There's something for us to do, and that's why reality translates into responsibility. No matter how much of Jesus we know, no matter how assured we are of the future that awaits, no matter how much we long for the glory to come, if God has left us here in this world right now, every day there's a responsibility that we have to those that are lunatics, to those that are vexed and lost, those that are crazy, those that are in need, we have something to give to them. And if God leaves us here, it's because there's something that needs to be done. And here's the message that I have for you tonight in light of the text and in light of where we are as a people, as a nation, but mostly as a church. And it's this, that we are in days right now like no other days that we've experienced and really even our parents and grandparents have experienced in the world. The things that we're going through right now have the potential to change the landscape of our living experience forever. Our country may never be the same. The world may never be the same in some ways after this. Now, it might. This could pass and blow over, and everything by summertime could be completely back to normal. But even if that happens, it won't be long before the next thing comes that flips us over again, because Jesus said in the last days it would be like labor pains that would come, that would grow with intensity, and frequency, and things would become unstable. So here's what that means. It means that for you and I that know him and know where we're going, we have a responsibility, but we have a huge opportunity. And how we navigate 
where or how we go through all of this will determine whether or not we crush it or whether we're crushed by it right now. And it will hinge on these things. Number one is where we fix our eyes. Right now, in the middle of what you're going through, right now where you are, what are you fixing your eyes on? Are your eyes fixed on the conditions, the government, the status of how things are going, the numbers, how many are infected, how many have died, how many have recovered, how many in New York? Are your eyes on the Dow Jones Industrial and what's going on with the economy or with your retirement account? Are your eyes on the disease, the dreadful disease that flies by night? Are your eyes on that? Or are your eyes fixed upon the shepherd? Because Jesus called himself a shepherd, and a shepherd always goes before his sheep. Meaning that Jesus has already navigated the pathway for every single one of us and how we're going to get through it. He doesn't tell us what that pathway is going to look like or how he's going to do it. He just says, follow me. And he's trustworthy as he leads. So if our eyes are fixed upon him, then we're in a position where we can be useful rather than crippled by the things that we're going through right now. I read recently John chapter 8. It was just in my devotions. And in John chapter 8, Jesus got into this crazy fight with the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day. And he offended them, and he said things that could have got him arrested in the context of his setting. But it says in John chapter 8, verse 20, it says that he was in the treasury when he spoke these things, a vulnerable place, but it says that no one laid a hand on him because, here's the reason, his time was not yet. Meaning, it wasn't because they didn't, they, they didn't have the authority, they did. It wasn't because they didn't have the opportunity, they did. The reason they didn't lay a hand on him is because it wasn't God's time for them to lay a hand on him. And you need to understand this, that if it isn't God's time for you to get a disease or an infection or to be afflicted or affected in any way, you're not going to be because it's not time. But if it is your time or God's will, then you can't stop it even with all the toilet paper in the world. He's a faithful shepherd. We can follow him with assurance, not just where we set our eyes but where we fix our hearts. The heart is the seat of our affections. Where is your heart set right now today? Is your heart set on earth, on your future here, on your someday retirement and what that might look like, on your health care, on the economy, on, on your comfort level, on your life here on this earth? Is that where your heart is? Because if it is, I can tell you right now, your heart is troubled. Because all of those things are troubled. They're not stable. And if that's where your heart is, your heart's moving all over the place through this thing. But the Bible gives us a greater place to set our hearts. Paul said to the Colossian church, it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul says. He says, If you then be risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He already sees you as there. He sees you as a dead human already. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him, listen, in glory. You see what awaits us? And so if our heart and our affections are set upon things above, then we cannot be moved by the things that happen to us here on earth. But if we don't have a vision of what awaits us in glory, then it's hard for us to set our affections there. Now, if our eyes and our heart is set in the right place, then you know what that will automatically do? It will free up our hands. What are your hands on right now? Six more cases of water? Getting ready to prep for the next emergency? Or rather, are your hands set to give away six cases of water, to offer hope and help and give away what you've been given. That's what we're to do. Peter writes, and he says this, he says that we're to be ready always to give an answer to every man for the hope we have within us. 
And if our eyes are on the shepherd and our heart is set in eternity, then we have nothing but hope living inside of us, which frees us to be light and give answer to those that are troubled in the season that don't know Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to give us a perfect life on this earth, better home, better garden. He came here to call us to himself and then to prepare us for the kingdom that awaits and use us in the harvest while we're on the way. And here's the call. He says, if any man will come after me, then let him take up his cross. That means that you're dying inside to him. Take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. If you seek to save your life here on earth, you're going to lose it. You're never going to find it. But if you lose your life for his sake, trust him completely and follow him, then you're going to find your life. And it's interesting, Jesus ends the previous chapter by saying that you will be rewarded for your work that's done in this way. There's a development that he is working in us right now. He wants to give us a vision of what we're working and striving towards, what we're walking towards. Now, I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about working out your salvation. I'm talking about following him through the difficulty, growing through it, and then seeing him greater and keep going, keep growing. And when it's time for him to come or for you to go, you can't stop it. You'll go. But in the meantime, we are the only light that this world has. And we have an incredible opportunity to be that light. But we must have the light of God inside ourselves. God isn't done revealing. He still has things that he wants to say, to show, and God will meet you even where you're at. And maybe in this time of extended retreat while you're waiting on him right now, maybe you should be waiting on him. Perhaps there's something that he wants to do. Maybe he'll give you a dream, or maybe he'll give you a time. I've had them in my life where things just change, the room changes, and it's like Jesus just comes, and he reveals things. There's a, there, there's a fellowship that happens with him. He's not done revealing, and, and I wonder if you maybe are in need of a revelation from God, but I ask you, are you willing? If Jesus says, climb the mountain and wait on me, are you willing, or do you un- not care? God isn't finished edifying. He still wants us to continue in his word, and he isn't finished preparing us for things to come. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us right now. And I would just ask you, if you're in a place where in response to this message, you want to say, yes, Jesus, I want more of you. I need more of you. I need my eyes set, my heart set, my hands set in the right direction. You know what? Just right now, by way of response, right in the chat box, just put a little hand emoji. Just show, hey, pray for me. I'm included in this. I know it's cheesy, but it's a way that we can connect, and I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name for all of those within the ear sound of my voice right now. And Lord, tonight we've heard from you that there's purpose, that there's depth, that there's more in the middle of this situation. Lord, would you move us into that place? Would you soften our hearts to the place where we can hear and receive of you? Would you speak to us in ways that maybe we have stopped believing that you can or that you will or that you want to? And would you make us the salt and light that you call your church, that we might be truly filled, truly alive, truly on fire for you in the days that we're living in, and truly fruitful as we reach into the lives of others. Lord, would you do a work even now? Would you strip away the busyness, strip away the old, strip away, Lord, the distractions and the iniquities and the things that have pulled us down, the thorns that have choked us, and give us a fresh filling with your spirit, a fresh vision of you. Jesus, would you do that now for us? And maybe you're listening to me right now and you don't know Jesus personally. You're in the room with someone who's watching this, or maybe you're listening to it later on. But you have yet to open your heart to the Savior of the world and let him inside to become your shepherd, that your eyes might see things that you don't even know exist, and that your heart might be set on something so glorious that this world can't hold a candle to it. The invitation is clear. Jesus says he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. He's already paid the price completely for your sins to be forgiven and for the wide gap that exists between you and God to be bridged so that the two of you can become one again. And Jesus simply knocks and he says, if any man will open to me, I will come into him. 
And if you will believe in your heart that he is and that God raised him from the dead, and if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That's the promise of God. He'll move into your life, he'll grab you by the heart, and he'll begin to lead you in a way that you never thought was possible. And if you need to accept Jesus right now into your heart, I would just ask you to pray this quick prayer with me. It'll be a start, but God will take you from here. Say these words, Lord Jesus, I believe. And I open my heart to you right now. And I ask that you would come inside, that you would forgive my sins, that you would wash away all the filth of the past, and that you would set my feet upon your path, that you would give me a vision of who you are, that you would open my understanding to the person of God, that you would begin a relationship with me, and that you'd fill me with yourself. I believe. Save me. Thank you for your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. And listen, if you prayed that prayer right now, I would ask you, please let us know. Just drop it right in the comment box and say, I prayed with you, Pastor Nick, or I believe in Jesus. He heard you, but we want to pray for you. We want to know what's going on in your life. And listen, we're longing, longing for the day when we'll be all back together again as the church. But in the meantime, we're not that far away. Jesus keeps our hearts knit together. He loves you and he's with you in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.